Hello and welcome to Nightlight. We don't often offer you a previously recorded message as a nightlight. Your, your last message in Nightlight was regarding the subject of death. Mary prompted me to bring that message after she found herself with a sense of urgency uh, about doing it. So we thought that was a completed task. But a few days ago, while going through our archives for a completely unrelated purpose, I sensed the, the Lord direct me to go to a certain file, then to a certain subfile, where I seemingly, at random, pulled up this lecture. After reviewing it and revising it uh, a bit, uh, we're offering it to you now because it seems to be a follow-up to the previous message on death. Now, I don't mean to try to make this sound more dramatic or supernatural than it was, but it simply happens to be a fact that the pulling of that file and the retrieving of the subfile was not anything on my conscious mind, and it was unrehearsed, as unrehearsed as it would have been if I'd closed my eyes and just randomly grabbed the title out of some 350 possibilities. So I'm offering it to you with that information only because uh, I'm a witness to the fact that I believe it was a rather unusually guided event. This was originally given at the close of an early marriage conference uh, that Mary and I led at St. Simon's Island, Georgia, back in the early 90s. The power of the present truth that it carries has become even more pressing and relevant now. So please listen with both ears, attuned to the voice of the Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is saying now to us. If it's jarring in places, if it only seems to be uh, relevant for married couples in some places, please get past that and hear the whole message. Put on the whole armor of God so that we may be able to stand in the day of evil and having done all, keep standing. Because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. Love, death, and life. We've traveled thousands of miles over the past few decades, more times than we can number. We have sat in the cramped seat of an airplane, wearily but eagerly anticipating the words directing us to fasten our seatbelts to prepare for our descent into Los Angeles or London or especially Dallas. We've always been aware of God's presence with us in traveling and we've taken shelter under his wings. But because of so much experience with this kind of travel, I couldn't help but place myself to some degree in the minds and emotions of certain past airline disaster passengers. Charlotte, Pittsburgh, more recently, Indiana. I thought of what must have passed through the terror-stricken souls of those 68 passengers as they became all too forcefully confronted with the cold, mechanical fact of a broken wing, an upside-down descent, and impending irrefutable, unavoidable death. From their height of over 6,000 feet, there was time to consider, time enough to make some last expression 
of themselves toward God before the annihilation of all that they were on the physical dimension. I couldn't help but wonder if they'd ever seriously considered the fact of their own mortality beyond the typical thought that surely comes to everyone's mind no matter how briefly. But did they ever capture that fleeting thought and give it enough focus to honestly deal with its meaning or consider its message? Or did the sights and sounds and distractions of the airport music and the CNN news monitor and all the nervous hustle and bustle of other equally distracted passengers once again successfully aid them in their denial until that fateful moment when denial was no longer possible and the shadow of death became for them in a mere matter of seconds their all-too-concrete present and absolute unavoidable reality. I think of earlier times in our history before science and technology had yet made many of the strides forward in safer travel or better medicine or labor-saving technologies. Most folks were born and raised and died in the same general vicinity in that era. Old folks were usually surrounded by their loved ones as they passed away. Death was as much a part of real life as birth. And for sure, we can romanticize those days too much, for we are all very thankful for the improvements that make our lives much more livable. I doubt any woman has a sentimental attachment to a washboard. But it still seems to me, based on all I've read and what I've learned from those few still around who remember those days, that folks were a lot more prepared to face life because they had from an early age, learned to face death. Maybe in foolhardy arrogance, they still didn't seek peace with God, but at least they didn't try to act as if aging and death and eternal questions were non-issues. They simply couldn't. It was in front of them. There was little entertainment or electronic amusement with which to medicate themselves or insulate their emotions from certain facts. Dr. Marvin Wilson says concerning our current attempt to escape both age and death, quote, our society places a decisive accent on youth which evokes a corresponding fear of old age. The increase in the number of elderly has paralleled with a decrease in their role and status. We have so overemphasized the desirability of youth and its features that youth has become an idol. Americans spend an inordinate amount of money to support the cult of youthful attractiveness and youthful related issues. We also euphemistically make references to the whole concept of age, like we do death. People in their 40s are still young men and women. In their 60s and 70s, they are mature or getting on in years. And beyond 80, they are senior citizens or in their golden age. And there's nothing really wrong with that, but rarely in open society are they referred to as aged or elderly, as if that phrase is some kind of insult or at least some sort of impropriety. But it's not because there's anything wrong with simply speaking of the aged as being aged. It's because we have lost the understanding of the value 
and respect for the position of the elderly. They are like Israel. Israel reminds the world there is a God. And the elderly remind us in life that life is temporary. We only euphemize in order to avoid giving proper place and to avoid acknowledging the subject at all. For to honor the aged would mean we must acknowledge the accompanying truth that man in this present age is destined to die. The secondary result of this is that we disregard the value of the aged and deprive ourselves of what wisdom we might gain from acknowledging both age and the aged. So the problem is not the age, but our foolish materialistic view of age. Though we like to believe we are being respectful of the aged in this way, we would not want to truly examine how our culture really treats its elderly in general. If you pay attention, you'll find for the most part it's only those amongst the aged who don't act their age that get any consideration or worthy uh, notice. I'm not referring to those who wisely seek to maintain health and mobility in order to keep a quality of life that's worth living. That's plain common sense. First, to those who refuse to pay any attention to the message being sent by their continually diminishing physical equipment, which is only echoing what the scripture has already said, that our outward man is perishing, but our inward man is or can be renewed day by day while we look not on the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. Those who willfully refuse to pay attention to the unseen, who reject the kind messenger of natural aging and its end result of death, are left with their only option, and that is to act younger than their ability and station in life affords them which means they must also abandon their well-earned position as elder, guide, and wise example. This sad trade-off leaves them looking buffoonish and sometimes embarrassingly vulgar, and therefore morbidly pitiful. Malcolm Muggridge describes this comic tragedy which he observed while visiting the United States when he was in his 80s. He says, quote, A month spent in Florida in the company of fellow geriatrics gave me some idea of the length to which the old are induced in our culture to go in order to distract themselves from the thoughts of their impending demise. In, let us call it, sunshine haven, everything was done to make us feel that we were not really aged, but still full of youthful zest and expectation. If not teenagers, then keen-agers, perfectly capable of disporting ourselves on the dance floor, the beach, or even the bed. Withered bodies arrayed in dazzling summer wear, hollow eyes glaring out of garish caps, skulls plastered with cosmetics, Lean shanks tanned a rich brown, bony buttocks encased in scarlet trousers. It all served to make a Florida beach on a distant view, really a macabre version of Keats' Grecian urn. What men or gods are these? What maidens loath? What mad pursuit? What struggle to escape? What pipes and timbrels? 
What wild ecstasy. It's nearer to, or more realistically, a picture of Evelyn Woe's little novel, The Loved One, a sad British short story about the running of a funeral parlor. At Forest Lawn, the cadavers are scented and anointed and dressed for their obsequies in their exotic best, right down to the underclothes. Well, at Sunset Haven in Florida, we pre-cadavers likewise arrayed ourselves like young debutantes and their squires on a spree and behaved accordingly, though sometimes with creaking joints and inward groans, all of the amenities available in Sunset Haven, bingo, swimming pools, books, billiards, golf, and the one never spoken of or advertised in any way, the crematorium, discreetly hidden away among the trees and bushes, and unmentioned in any way in any of the illustrated brochures. Death is the dirty little secret that sex once used to be. Now, of course, this is not to deny the elderly joys or pleasures to which they have every right in themselves. No, it's the mad dance that seeks to deny the inevitable reality that age forewarns. That's the charade that needs to be exposed. And even more, the refusal of the aged to take on their proper role of the elderly, but also of being elders, spiritual fathers and spiritual mothers of the coming generation. That's the even greater tragedy. The only reason for what might seem to some as a cruel exposure of what might be mistaken is simply old folks trying to have a good time and find a tiny bit of momentary reprieve from what is an otherwise difficult life, is that by rebuking that lie, we might be able to help them to refuse to be relegated and reduced to the modern materialist decorated garbage dump where potentially wise elder leaders are siphoned off away from fruitful enterprise and meaningful relationships into the insipid asylum populated by potential kings and queens who have denied their crowns, denied their position, and rather taken on the caricature of silly old fool instead. It is this evil that must be exposed, renounced, and replaced. There's the opposite extreme. On the other end of this spectrum is the increasing specter of agedness, seen clearly for what it is, baggage that needs to be disposed of, not dressed up and partied, not pampered, but killed. In this scenario, there is no laughing attempt to hide the fact of debilitation and death. It's being fully faced, but by a hopeless society which must not allow its own little time which it has left to be taken up with caring for the useless preceding generation and are always at work seeking humane, so-called, quick and, of course, economical ways to dispose of them as soon as possible. This carried on by the same social engineers who brought us abortion and the murder of children though now the abortionist supporters are coming to their own stage of life which will render them 
to be in the role of useless eaters who take up good space that could be better used. So the lines to get into the Christian-run care facilities are on the increase. Not so much because the care seekers are particularly God-fearing, but because they want to be sure that they won't be murdered by some do-gooder mercy killer staff member who's always ready to pull somebody's plug in the name of progress. I painfully well remember in the early 1990s the terrified look in the eyes of the elderly lady from Holland who'd come to London seeking help. She asked for us to pray with her that her grown children would not have her euthanized. Remember that we as a Christian culture stayed silent as millions of children were killed for decades. Will we stay passively silent and quiet with the rising increased number of elderly are being marched to their death in those same numbers? We'll have to see. Now, the materialist has no options. To be fair, the materialists have nowhere else to go, do they? If this life is all there is, then it is intolerable for them to consider the unavoidable approach of death that maybe it is so intolerable that we should be a little forgiving that they must at least be allowed the freedom to avoid speaking about and acknowledging it at all. If they can't stop the fact, then at least allow them to stop the thought. And who knows? They may one day decide to march on the capitals of the world and force the passage of legislation which will democratically overturn death as an unfair bourgeois leftover of superstitious religious days gone by, even though it's demonstrable that death is not racial or ethnic or sexual or politically prejudiced, it is a truly equal opportunity employer. Well, tongue-in-cheek aside, there's also the refusing of the Christian culture to acknowledge the plight of the aged. Dr. Carl Stern says, quote, Many of the difficulties besetting our elderly people are due to the fact that we live in a technocratic civilization. In rural cultures, old people had a place. They were consulted as counselors because they were regarded as people of wisdom. But in a technocratic society with an assembly line system in which the individual is specialized in his activity and efficiency is often a matter of speed, It's easy to see how the aged could be thrown aside to the rubbish heap. Yet old people are in the time of most needful support. Other than at infancy, there is no time of greater need of that support, for this is the time of bereavement. Men have lost their wives, women their husbands, parents have lost children, and old people are losing their last surviving friends. I would add to Dr. Stern's statement that the richness of both experience and relationship are also at their peak in families not seduced by the spirit of the age. One of the ways to rebuke and resist the spirit of the age is to purposefully ensure the right honor and care of our aged family members. Thankfully, there are increasing ministries to help families find the wisest way to accomplish this. But in Isaiah chapter 3 and Lamentations chapter 5, both of these chapters refer to the dishonor of the aged 
as part of the signs of a disintegrating culture that is under God's chastening judgment. To the Jew, verbal dishonor was a disgrace. We've gone well past verbal dishonor. We finally approach the pinnacle of arrogant coldness, as in the same spirit of false compassion by which we murdered babies. We increasingly seek new ways to kill our useless elderly. But let us not be so quick to judge those extreme manifestations that we fail to take responsibility for our need as Christian families to not just provide biological life for our loved ones, but true life in the Spirit, life in relationship. Is there anything more tragic or unnecessary than growing older without growing wiser? Not all fools gather in a retirement village and dance around hoping to avoid the grave. Seduced by the offers of perpetual youth, you can find that same thing almost any street corner. Do you ever feel pity for the pot-bellied old man whose unbuttoned shirt reveals the empirical evidence of his impending disintegration, though he thinks he looks sexy? We laugh at these things because they're too grotesque to take seriously. But who are these old folks? Well, they are all, every one, former young folks. They may be a preview of me and you. It all depends on what we choose to hold valuable. Dr. James Dobson tells of a very close friend of his who at the age of 55 betrayed his wife of many years for another woman. Why did you do it? Dr. Dobson writes. Don't you know that you both will be standing before the Lord in the briefest moment of time? How will you explain the pain and the rejection inflicted on your loved ones? What a terrible price to pay for so short an adventure. Do you still value the wife of your youth more for her measurements than for her personhood? Is your normal and healthy attraction to her body being also enhanced by the ever-increasing appreciation for who she is and what she has shared with you and you with her through the years of covenant relationship? Or does your desire and care for her decrease as her measurements may increase? I have on several occasions heard supposed Christian counselors and speakers on the subject of relationships suggest, if not openly state, that it's no great mystery why Christian men sometimes wander into pornography or adultery if his wife is not keeping herself sexy enough for him. You see, even to the so-called wise Christian counselor in some circles, It is the physical appearance and erotic pleasure that is the measure of life and not life itself as its own measure. Paul Overstreet's song is cute, but it's also very to the point. They say time takes its toll on a body, makes a young girl's brown hair turn gray. But honey, I don't care. I ain't in love with your hair. And if it all fell out, I'd love you anyway. Do you realize and grasp on the deepest heart level that if you do not choose to become wiser as you become older, you will find yourself in the terrible experience one day of having all the immature, self-centered, erotic appetites of an ignorant youth still pulling at your shrinking soul 
that is now housed in a body that is purposefully designed by God to help you lay aside foolishness of youth and prepare you for the end of this life in preparation for the next. And though your sexual union should certainly grow and increase with joy and intimacy, even if it decreases with energy, what should be left is the golden alloy of love that will outshine and outlast its previous lesser forms of erotic energy. Your sexuality, by this time in your life, together should be expressing the oneness of soul which has been formed in you both through the years, so that there's no room left in any longer for the mental experimentations with another person, much less any real temptation to cheat. Is there anything as pathetic or repulsive as a dirty old man? I guess maybe a dirty old woman. But far more repulsive than such a man or a woman is a married couple that did not bother to seek with all they had when they were young to cultivate and develop their love and affection and commitment to one another as their wise investment for their future. They were too busy being taken up with the frustrations of the present and the disappointments of the past to invest in such a future. They didn't seem to realize that every wasted moment spent holding grudges, demanding rights, and fantasizing about lost alternatives could have just as easily been spent in loving acts kind words, remembered anniversaries and birthdays, little surprises and big kisses. That each moment so invested would have eventually accrued a dividend of lifetime love with compounded interest. They could easily have retired on such investments as this. Instead, by not investing the treasure they had in hand, they will spend their closing days trying to find some quick thrill to remind themselves that they're not dead yet, or maybe worse, giving up early on life and dying on the inside a few years before the body finally gets the delayed message. How do we avoid this trap? Whether you're married or single, how do you avoid the trap of the spirit of this world and the siren song of materialistic false hopes. Have you contemplated the unsurpassed preciousness, the absolute unreplaceable treasure of the people in your life, whether you're married or not, but most of all, to whom you are married? Have you ever laid awake at night or awakened in the wee hours of the morning and stared through the moonlight at the miracle lying next to you? Did you quietly whisper a prayer of thanksgiving that such a miracle could possibly have been given to you? That's a wise cliche, but it's been so long neglected that it's no longer a cliche, but a brand new truth to a whole new generation that we are never ready to face life until we have faced death. It is only the fool who has been duped by the lies and cliches of this present short-sighted shallow age that tries to deal with death by simply not dealing with it. If you think it's morbid to address this topic, then I say with all loving honesty that you are terribly deceived. I learned from an early age, after being around death, families, and funerals since I was a boy of 12, pulled out of many a classroom during a school day in order to provide music for an afternoon memorial service, 
Then, all through my young adult life to the present, participating in funerals and the events leading up to those funerals as a pastor, as a musician, and as a counselor. And I can tell you that the loudest weeping and the most inconsolable mourning comes from those who realize too late that there is unfinished emotional business between themselves and the one who is gone. Issues that could have been put right, but weren't. And now the saddest words in all language, it's too late. Now thank God in Christ, even that is not too late. But Mike Mason writes, Is there anything that more increases the sheer value of another person in our eyes than to see them at death's doorstep and to know that in only a little while they will be gone from the face of the earth? Why not strive to live each day not only as if it were our last or even the last for the whole world, but the last for someone we love? For indeed it may well be. Somehow we must learn to mourn our beloved while he or she is still with us. Not wait until they're gone and our grief does no one any good but ourselves. At least one kiss each day should be watered with tears and planted on bone. The bone must be acknowledged, our respects paid before the flesh can truly be celebrated. And love must grapple with remorse, drawing out its sting with little daily acts of tribute. For now is the time to eulogize. Now is the time to deck with flowers. Today is the day to carry to its rest the whole weight of our love's flesh upon our shoulders. It's right to say with Dr. James Dobson that maybe the greatest battle we must fight is against what he calls the illusion of permanence. He writes, quote, We are lulled into a passive stupor which renders us deaf and dumb to what is really important. In August of 1977, my wife and children joined me on a trip to Kansas City for a short visit with my parents. We enjoyed several days of family togetherness before it was time to leave. As we drove to the airport where we would say goodbye, I asked my father to pray for us. I will never forget what he prayed. Lord, we want to thank you for the fellowship and love we feel for each other today. This has been a special time for us. But Father, we are keenly aware that the joy that is ours today is only a temporary pleasure. Our lives will not always be this stable and secure. Change is inevitable and it will come to us too. We will accept it when it comes, of course, but we give you thanks and praise for the happiness and warmth that has been ours these past few days. We've had more than our share of good things, and we thank you for them and for your love. Amen. Shortly after we hugged, said our goodbyes, and my family and I boarded the plane, A week later, my father suddenly grabbed his chest and told my mother to call the paramedics. He left us that year. Now mom is gone too. Our whole life seems to be a parade of happy hellos and sad goodbyes. How quickly it all unraveled for us. Even today, so many years later, my dad's final prayer echoes in my mind. An entire philosophy is contained in that simple idea of 
Thank you, Lord, for what we have, which we know we cannot keep. How I wish every married couple, and I would add any who love anybody, could capture this truth. If we only realize how brief is our time, then most of the irritations and frustrations which drive us apart would seem terribly insignificant and petty. We have but one short life to live, yet we contaminate it with bickering and insults and angry words. If we fully comprehended the brevity of life, our greatest desire would be to please God and to love one another. Instead, the illusion of permanence drives us to miss the precious moments as if they were easily replaceable. End quote. We face death, we will be able to live life. I know in an audience of this size, there are many listening who not only have a full grasp of the truths I'm trying to share, but who understand them far better than I do. I could certainly learn from you because you've already experienced firsthand what I'm trying to awaken myself and the rest of us to consider. So I proceed very carefully here and ask those of you who have already faced the death of a spouse or a child or anyone close to you that you would forgive me if I awaken pain that's not fully healed. I'm certainly not trying to cause pain, but if we can endure the process, including the pain, come to a place of deeper healing of that pain. Let's try. Because we examine these realities in the light of the ultimate reality of an empty tomb and a risen Lord. We can truly learn to live life as we look death right in its face. Catherine Marshall describes her experience when she first went to view the body of her husband, Dr. Peter Marshall, after his death from a massive heart attack at the age of 46. You'll remember from our last session last month, it was his message to the graduating class at Annapolis on December 7, 1941, that you heard in the previous recording. She says, quote, There's nothing pretty about death. Those who sentimentalize it are lying. Carbon dioxide escaping from a sagging jaw the limp hands, the coldness and pallor of the skin. No wonder they call us the white race. I never knew the skin could be so white. The finality of it, the pathos. The voice on the telephone had said that Dr. Marshall had died very peacefully in his sleep. I found myself unable to speak. I was hanging on to the telephone receiver as if the small black instrument could hold me up. How could real life feel so much like a dream? What is reality? Life? Death? Who can tell? My head is whirling. A furiously beating heart. Unseeing eyes, unsteady legs must somehow walk on into this dream and be enveloped by it. To feel its clamminess, to protest against it, one must pick up life again even though one feels as dead on the inside as a wounded, tin, wind-up mechanical soldier setting one foot in front of the other. There's a curious detachment in it all. 
It is as if the mind stops and steps back from the emotions and stands off to observe. Was it the numbing effect of my grief that for a time gave me an aloofness in order to be able to think? Every detail of that moment will be forever stamped on my mind. The sight of it, the sound of it. This is the raw stuff of what death and life are made. I thought, now you know. Of course, Catherine Marshall is describing the agony of her encounter, those first moments when Dr. Marshall died. But the words of her very husband on the day he spoke to the Annapolis graduating class was contradicting some of the sorrow that his wife is expressing understandably here when he says, in that life that's to come, we will not be shrouded with the forever memory of death. Something Catherine Marshall certainly understands and understood even then. But we respect her need to express the grief that she expressed. C.S. Lewis begins his journal after the death of his wife, Joy, with these words. No one ever told me that grief felt so much like fear. I'm not afraid. But the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness. I yawn a lot. I keep swallowing. At other times it feels like being mildly drunk or that I might have a slight concussion. There's a sort of invisible blanket between me and the whole world. I find it hard to take in what anyone is saying to me or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It all seems so uninteresting. Yet I want the others to be around me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would just talk to each other and not to me. We have a God-given coping mechanism that helps us focus on living in such times, enough to help us move on, and that's a good thing in itself. Without it, we would indeed be hypnotized and stricken morbidly paralyzed by the specter of death and grief. But if given too much power, it numbs us to a point of total lack of comprehension, and such total numbing brings a sort of death all of its own. We have not had to face the sobering realities of death through war in many years until recently. As a society, we were so in denial of these facts that in the early 1990s, the Army unsuccessfully tried to keep the purchase of 100,000 body bags a secret. They were purchased in preparation for Desert Storm. But when news of it leaked to the press, the press reported it as if it was a big news item, as if somehow there was some great incongruity between body bags and war. It's similar to the current preoccupation on magazines and in website headlines where it seems to be news that once dashing, glamorous movie stars are losing their looks and getting old. Well, thankfully, we did not need 100,000. Not then. But bags were needed and have continued right up to the present wars. Wars awaken ultimate issues. Thankfully, though, because war does 
does awaken these issues. There were many other burials in the desert that did not require body bags. These were the burials in water baptism as soldiers gave themselves to Christ and were immersed in makeshift baptistries all over the battlefield area. We may think that hell rejoices in war, and certainly war is hell and is a product of hell. Still, Screwtape pointed out to his young apprentice demon that if we're not careful, we could see thousands turning towards our enemy, while tens of thousands who may not go so far as that will nevertheless have their attention diverted from themselves to values and causes which they believed to be higher than themselves. Consider what undesirable deaths wartime brings people. They are killed in places where they know they are possibly going to be killed, might be killed, to which they go, if they know anything about our enemy, well prepared. How much better for us if humans die in costly nursing homes amid doctors who lie and nurses who lie and friends who lie, as we have well trained them, promising life to the dying and encouraging the belief that sickness excuses every indulgence, and even if our workers know their job, withholding all suggestion of a priest or pastor, lest that should betray to the sick person their true condition. How disastrous the remembrance of death comes in wartime. One of our best weapons, contented worldliness, is rendered useless. In wartime, not even a human can believe that he's going to live forever. But the question always comes, is there any meaning behind every single pile of flesh on a battlefield that moments before had been some named and loved human being? What about the still breathless form lying in a hospital morgue or the mangled corpse beneath the overturned car? The question screams so loud, we don't know how to answer it. Is there really any meaning in it all? If it's my wife or your husband or a child and our defenses no longer work but are completely destroyed, Will we have anything in us that will provide assurance that life is not one big, horrible, sadistic joke? There's a linguistic relationship between the words meaning and meanness. The root of both words is mean or means and refers to the resources needed to accomplish and support life. He has the means to supply them all their needs, we say. Meaning is to provide means in order to to live. And meanness is the spirit of murder and death which seeks to remove the means. Is there any meaning in death? Or is it just mean? Dr. Carl Stern says, quote, I worked at one time as a pathologist in a mental hospital where I had to perform autopsies on patients I had known in life. Many were anonymous, forgotten people who for years had lived demented and were deteriorating in dark corners of some ward. When their bodies and their inner organs were laid open, it did not seem to make much difference if they were alive or dead. It certainly made no difference to society at large. In most cases, no one ever turned up to claim the bodies. 
In these situations, I was faced with the simple alternative. Either what I see in the autopsy room is not the whole truth and will one day be transfigured, or the whole human existence is, as John Paul Sartre put it, one big mess that makes you vomit. There are only two possibilities, only these two, and no matter how hard you try, you will find that there's nothing in between. There's no shortcut and no human solution to this question, but we know some things. We know that it is hate which desires death. It is love that desires life. The man whose body was unclaimed had once been loved in his life. He was someone's child. We can still visualize him in the arms of his mother or someone who filled that maternal role. And whoever loved him would have been horrified to see him as a mass of dead flesh. He had been loved not as a disincarnated soul, God forbid, but as a living flesh and blood human being. His very existence had been brought about by love, or at least by the energies that foreshadow real love. If our limited human love as husbands, wives, parents, can desire life of the flesh and wish that it would go on forever, how much more is it true of infinite love? Therefore, if the incarnation and death of Jesus Christ is the manifestation of the infinite love's attitude towards us, then the resurrection is the most logical reality in the universe. Love demands life, and infinite love demands infinite life. All the study, all the philosophizing or theologizing can't prepare us for the reality of that moment when what I'm describing comes to us personally, especially if it's our wife or our husband. The purpose of this message is not to try to awaken in us some fear of losing a loved one or even to awaken a deeper emotionally sensitive awareness of the fragility of earthly life so that we may be more attuned to these truths, even though that has its place. That's not the purpose of this message. Our deepest need is for a deeper understanding of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that we know it far beyond mere theological, creedal forms. Buried with him in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. Yes, we believe those things. But if it's only a creed, then in the times of earthly ultimate reality, we may find ourselves falling apart. Thankfully, underneath us are the everlasting arms that will catch us as we fall. But we don't have to just depend on a miracle coming in and swooping under us and putting us back together after we've fallen completely apart we can learn to grow in grace and walk with the Lord into a deeper and deeper understanding of our union with Christ so that when everything that can be shaken in this life is shaken, as is now happening to our brothers and sisters in the Middle East and in other benighted parts of this present darkness, if our time should come that we are no longer reading about it in newspapers as being over there somewhere, and it's a clear and present reality to us, 
then the only issue that will matter will be that we are united not necessarily to each other, precious as that is, but that all of us that we love are in union with him. For if we are in union with him, we're automatically united to each other. Think of the freedom from fear and the liberty of movement that would bring in whatever world you may wake up to tomorrow or the next day to know that you and those you love are in the grip of omnipotent love and nothing can take you out of that grip. I, like so many others, quote C.S. Lewis often because he simply says what we want to say better than anyone else can say it. But I also see Lewis's entire life as a mythic picture of the journey that all believers through the valley of the shadow of death are on. It seems that God especially raised up Lewis as the apostle of truth to stand against this age of pseudo-scientific arrogant materialism with its vast expanse of meaningless, empty, cold, dead space. Not only his teaching, but his very life seems to point to the reality that our greatest desire, our deepest longing, our highest heavenly hope is exactly what God had in mind. That love not only is, but is forever. Which means that nothing that is truly of love can ever die. As a young boy, Lewis lost his mother. And later, in early adolescence, he embraced atheism, which was reinforced in him through his ongoing educational influences, but it was also through those same educational influences that Lewis began to doubt his doubts. Against his own desire to the contrary, he came to the conclusion that atheism just was not logical. By the time he was 30, he had come to full faith in Christ, and he not only came to faith because of sound reason, aided by the Holy Spirit, but also by the awakening in him in brief but dramatic moments when it seemed that the curtain of the invisible real was for a moment pulled back and Lewis was able to see what he called his true country. This deep sense of longing which called to his heart as a boy and then from time to time in his emerging adulthood. Such moments awakened in him what he came to simply call joy. He meant by joy the intuition and awareness that all he had ever longed for or wished for on the heart level was not only possible, but was the very reality behind all realities. That beyond all hope, not only was it real, but it was calling to him, inviting him to come home sometimes through music, sometimes in the smell of fresh-cut grass or the bloom of flowers. But Lewis warns us not to ever try to find that joy in the music or in the flowers. It won't be there. It only comes through the flowers. It only comes through the music. It is the smell of a flower I have not found, music of a song I have not heard. Longing for a country I have never visited. He named his biography Surprised by Joy, meaning that he was taken by surprise to find that this deep longing that would take his heart at times was the gentle invitation from the invisible real that Christ was who he claimed to be and that his sense of being homesick for a country he had never visited 
was because that was where his true home was. He would say of this world, these are only the shadowlands. Real life has not begun yet. But this was not the only way Lewis would be surprised by joy. Several years after completing his autobiography of that title, after he long thought that romantic love had passed him by, he met and later married Joy Gresham. Like a parable of all he had been learning and teaching, he loved her long enough to be able to explore firsthand the depths of what it means for a man to love a woman. The most precious gift that marriage gave me was the most constant impact of something being very close and real. Not a cranny of my heart or a longing of my body was left unsatisfied. We truly were one flesh, he said. Then, when it seemed love could not humanly be expressed more deeply, between them the sword of Damocles, as he called it, Joy's Cancer, brought her three-year fight for life to an end. Lewis then had to face what every Christian has to face at one time or another. Do I really believe that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that he rose from the dead, and that he loves and keeps me, and he loves and keeps that which I love most in the world? If the answer to those questions is not yes, then what is love? Where does it come from? Why would there be hope in the heart of man if all he is is a soulless mass of electrochemical responses acted upon by other electrochemical stimuli? Look inside yourself now as you listen to this. You feel, you long, you love, you think, you wonder, you hope, you cry, you laugh. If you can find assurance no other place, you surely can find assurance in the reality of spirit by simply looking inside your own heart. Your union with your spouse, if you're married, also attests to the reality of this invisible treasure. Consider it, or your love for a child, or even a, a deep, committed friendship. Think of what it really is and how it moves you inside and know that it is what it is because it too was meant to be a reflector of this ultimate joy. This is why it's always such a target of the enemy's hatred, why he hates relationship. Though he hates all good, he especially hates the real and the good and the true that is manifested in the sexual relationship inside the covenant of marriage. He seeks to use that very force by twisting it and deforming it. Not because he likes sex. On the contrary, it's his utter hatred for what is really being manifested in it that causes him to make it his chief aim at mockery and perversion and attack. Lewis finally emerged from the agony of his journey through the valley of the shadow of death. He had faced not only the shadow, but the substance of death itself. He became all the more convinced of the truth he had come to previously know and teach, that these are the shadowlands, that real life has not begun yet, though it had begun for joy, and soon after he would follow. 
Thirteen years before Joy's death, Lewis had painted for us a vivid picture in the death of a young soldier who had been stalked all his life by a demon intent on destroying his relationship to God. At the soldier's death, the superior devil, Screwtape, confronts the demonic junior tempter with these words. The more I think about it, the worse it becomes. He got through so easily, didn't he? No gradual misgivings, no doctor's sentences, no nursing home, no operating room, no false hopes for life, just sheer instantaneous liberation. One moment his world seemed to be all ours. The scream of bombs, the fall of houses, the stink and taste of high explosives on the lips and in the lungs, the feet burning with weariness, the heart cold with horrors, the brain reeling, the legs aching. Next moment, all gone. Gone like a bad dream, never again to be of any account. You defeated, outmaneuvered fool. Did you notice how naturally... As if he had been born to it, the earth-born vermin entered the new life. How all his doubts became in the twinkling of an eye. Ridiculous. I know what he was probably thinking. Yes, yes, this is the way it has always been. The tooth extraction hurts more and more, and then it is out. The dream becomes a nightmare, and then you wake. You die and die, and then you are beyond death. Did you notice how not only he saw you, but he saw him? This animal, this thing begotten in a bed, can look on him. What is blinding, suffocating fire to you is now cool light to him, is clarity itself and wears the form of a man. In the few moments we have left, would you just take a few minutes, turn off whatever mechanism you're using to listen, get quiet, be still, and let your heart talk to you. And let your heart talk to God. And most of all, let God talk to your heart. See where there's any weaknesses in you. We can never know how strong we are or how weak we are or how prepared we are. As Corey Ten Boom wisely reminded us, God does not give us grace for imaginary suffering. He only gives us what we need in the moment we need it. But you'll be much more prepared to be a recipient of that grace if you deal with the questions of love, death, and life. And we be torn from home's embrace.
Then 